Welcome to episode 58. March Madness has begun, and so has this show. I'm Mike, alongside with... Daniel. Vincent and special guest Spawn. For the audio listeners, uh, Vince Scott delivered the the crowdfunded remake of the very first Spawn figure that McFarlane uh, did. It's a, it's a very nice uh, figure. Very high quality. But uh, gentlemen, March Madness has begun as we started off our show. Vince, I think your bracket's already gone. Well, everyone's bracket's busted with with Oral Roberts beating Ohio State this afternoon. But outside of that, how are you doing this week? The Snyder Cut came out. I watched it, and it, it was terrible. I'll, I'll do uh, another thing on that sometime elsewhere. But other than that, uh, my week was all right. Pretty much saying mine was long, very arduous. Kind of like the process for fans to finally get the Snyder Cut in their lives. And then the the long process of watching it, because it was four hours long. All the sweeter when you when you factor in all the all the hard fought battles on Twitter that were conducted over the years. Still haven't watched the original Justice League, so shame on me. It's, you can watch a, a bad movie that's two hours long or a bad movie that's four hours long. I think I should just do a marathon of both of them. Don't do that to yourself. All right, it was a busy week. I'll hop right in and start off the show with Nightwing 78. It was the, the big release this week. It was the big hyped release kind of since they announced the creative team for Infront Frontier. This is Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo, and Adriana Lucas. New era, new creative team for the fan-favorite Batman sidekick. Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo are looking to bring back the, some of that fun energy to Nightwing. As for like the last year, year and a half, he was stuck in that kind of awful status quo of Rick Grayson, who was like had amnesia and was driving a cab around Gotham City. So do we we got all rid of that. We're back to basics here. Opening a flashback of Dick Grayson saying how oh, he doesn't like bullies as he's defending a kid and also a young Barbara Gordon's there and he gets a police escort back to Wayne Manor. And I guess this is framed as Barbara's first meeting of, of Dick Grayson. But I know that Batman, or I think it's Robin year one, he sees her the first time on a rooftop with Gordon, and there, there's a fun moment there. But pretty good bonding moment here between uh, Dick and Alfred as when he enters, he finishes drying the dishes Alfred was doing because he doesn't feel like he should do it all himself. And then Alfred tells him he's like proud of that he stands up to people even outside the suit. Bruce wasn't there when he was like brought home, but Flash forward to today and Nightwing's back in Bloodhaven. He's fighting a gang and saving a stray dog who's most likely taking in. That's definitely a setup thing here. But at his apartment, Barbara's there and he's she's broken in to share with him the news of his inheritance that he's getting from Alfred because remember Alfred died at the, you know, the climax of the Tom King Batman run. And then we haven't really done anything with the fallout from it really that much, other than Bruce has lost his fortune. But that was a Joker War thing. But and also when that happened, he was, if you remember that, like Alfred rest in peace one shot, he was Rick Grayson in that. So he showed up at that bar for five seconds and just left. He learned that Alfred leaves him quite the fortune and knowing that he will put it to good use. So we also see Blockbuster taking out the mayor with the help of the police commissioner and like the mayor's aide as he's building his empire. And he instills this new mayor who is the daughter of Tony Zuko, which looks to destroy Nightwing. I love the tone here in the colors by Adriana Lucas. So expressive and like perfect for this more fun and energetic superhero vibe that Taylor's going for. Bruno Redondo kind of has a Mikhail Janin vibe to the art, but 
totally all his own with, uh, you know, the different shading on faces and whatnot and the, you know, the energetic expressions of the action scenes. And it sets its apart. It really sets its apart from any of the other Batman books because they all have that dark color palette. Well, this is like very bright with like kind of you know blues and pinks, which you know give a different vibe to Bloodhaven as well, which is uh, you know the different Bloodhaven from what I've seen before. But I like the new dimension of it. Easily one of the most hype books for Infinite Frontier, and I think it does what you set out to do in a first issue, which you know back to bases set the status quo and. Here's some light setup of things to come, but I'm pretty I'm pretty excited wholeheartedly for what Tom Taylor's gonna do with Nightwing here. Yeah, um, I'll definitely be staying on this book. This is definitely a really nice start for a restart, I guess, for me to kind of get to know this character more. I really like the panel too, like the little like half splash page here where he's kind of like fighting the the goons and he's like you see like his blue outline and jumping around. I think that's a really cool art choice there, but. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the, what sells me on this book is definitely the art. It's it's top notch. Yeah, really not much else to say. I, I love the opening flashback stuff. Like Mike said, I think this is a slightly tweaked version of you know Dick and Barbara's early relationship. But like, who cares at this point? Their chemistry in the present is perfect as well. The art is phenomenal. Uh, a lot of that I think is on the coloring for sure. Uh, the dog introduction is like pretty emotionally manipulative. Um, and the fact with the, you know, dog, you know, the dog in peril missing a leg, and then you get a couple panels as well, where it's like a close up on Dick using his, uh, his, uh, stick, like both Tom Taylor and the artist literally just ripped a page out of David Aja's playbook for the, the, you know, fraction and Aja's Hawkeye. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's not like the whole issue is like that. So. I haven't actually gotten around to Seeley's run, but similar to that, this feels right back in line with, you know, an actual Nightwing comic. Basically, you know, the Chuck Dixon era uh, feels very much in vain with that. He's a very, you know, positive, optimistic character. And also you see here, you know, a lot of the characters, you know, directly related to Nightwing and everything like that. You get you get Zuko and you get Blockbuster. So I'm totally on board. Yeah, back to basics approach. but you know, probably a different spin. And we already, at least with my experience over the past year of 2020, seeing how well Taylor gets the greater DC universe and the characters and relationships with all of them, it's kind of a match made in heaven. Though it is funny that he is writing Nightwing as he did kill him twice in two different, you know, outside universe things because he killed him in Injustice and he also killed him in Deceased. But now he's taking the reins on the go here. It, it's a funny thing, but like, do, do definitely get some from the get go, uh, which is really cool to see. I didn't have any like qualms or like nervousness the minute this uh, this team was announced. I was excited from the get go on it, but you know, I think we're all excited to see where it goes from here. And uh, I'll throw it to Vince for our our one lone X Men book in X Force. Yeah, to kind of transition between the books. In fact, the one final thing I'll say on Nightwing, and this is kind of a good closing comment on most first issues from DC and Marvel. Recently, I feel like we've kind of dug on DC for this in a couple instances, but Marvel just as much. And I mean, that this is my recurring thing on Spider-Man is that I hope that the art team is consistent. And that brings me to X-Force number 18, obviously the long running series by Ben Percy and this issue. And I believe the next one or two are drawn by Gary Brown instead of Joshua Kassara. The name I'm familiar with, but I can't tell you off the top of my head, like something I know him from. 
And I got to be totally honest, the art is super rough in this issue. I'm, some of this is probably the colors as well, but he's going for a Kassara lookalike. Um, but literally a couple pages in, we have Sage at the bar drunk and Blob as the bartender. And both of their faces are just absolutely terrifying. And then we get kind of two things and two major things in this issue. We get some trippy body horror and also some Jean Grey and Wolverine making out polyamory stuff. And both of those, you know, kind of the romantic, you know, angle, as well as the kind of horrific and trippy stuff, they both just highlight the bad art here. As far as the thing I mentioned and, the, you know, the actual plot stuff, I don't like Gene, Scott, or Logan being in relationships in any combination with any of the other three characters. But, oh well, whatever, Hickman's doing his thing. But the main plot here, it's continuing the story from the past issue where Quentin, Kid Omega, might have some messed up version of himself, uh, killing people and like knocking them out, giving them strokes and things like that. And so this issue, it's him and Sage and uh, I forget which cuckoo, um, the one he's dating, kind of trying to figure things out. And it's delving into the trauma of both Quentin, Sage, who is suddenly an alcoholic, and then Beast. Really, the only sequence of this issue where I felt that the art kind of fit were these flashback sequences of Beast. I mean, obviously, it's you know it's a dream sequence because he wasn't furry as a child, but it's it's like a it's like a child Beast who's getting like belittled in a school setting. That was like the only sequence where I wasn't annoyed by the art the entire time. Yeah, I. I thought this was Joshua Carsara when I first opened it because I was thinking, oh, I guess he just had an off one. This was, you know, rushed. I was like, oh, no, this is Gary Brown clearly trying to do a Joshua Carsara lookalike. And th- those faces are really bad, per- like you said, particularly in the in the in the Lagoon bar scene with Sage. I like that Percy continues to blend his Wolverine run with this because we get references to the vampires he's fighting in the Wolverine book which is good, but at the same time, like, I don't know, you, you say the, the relationship is Hickman's thing, but it's actually funny because he's the only one that's actually done anything with it, which is one thing I find interesting with the, the, the Gene and Scott thing outside of, the, you know, the one-page description of when we got the, the rooms on the moon. It's really been Percy who's done anything with it, but still not any deep dives of it. I... I've said it before. I really don't care who's with who at this point because it's been, you know, 30 years off and on. So, you know, whatever generation is going to have their more close net ties to it. I was never a huge X-Men fan beforehand. But like I said, we've, we've talked about that before, though. But uh, looking at the issue, yeah, the, the Gary Brown art definitely, you know, holds it back. Um, I like last issue, though, but this one was kind of a topsy-turvy downhand thing. Maybe like, like I suddenly just, I don't care as much about the, the whole possible Quentin Carr murder monster thing. I don't know. I, I look forward to recover though. at like 19 and 20, this was an outlier issue to what we've been accustomed to. Yeah. But, well, the thing is, so I just by happenstance was updating my stupid spreadsheets today. And Gary Brown is at least he's on the next issue, but then is gone. So he's on 18 and 19. And then 20 is tying into this Hellfire Gala, whatever, which I don't fully understand yet. I don't know if it's going to be another 20-part crossover or if every book's just kind of tying in but not connected, which I think might be the case, and I'm, I'd be okay with that. 
Yeah, I think, at least from what I understand from the Hellfire Gala thing, it seems like it's just going to be like an, a looming thing for a month. It's not like a crossover, which I think coming off after X of Swords, not even like three months later. Well, it is probably longer than three months, but it feels like right after that was over to do another 20-part thing would be a horrible idea. So I think it's just the next ancillary whatever line thing they're dubbing for the X-Men. But we'll, we'll head to our next... Uh, Infinite Frontier book, which was Justice League number 59 with Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, we gave this one to Dan. It's, I, I think we're all going to have different views on this, but all probably meet in the same spot. Yeah, so our next issue is Justice League number 59, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by David Marquez, colors by Tamara Von Villen. The issue opens to Black Adam facing off against this demon guy whose name is Brutus when the Justice League show up. And also, Superman has trunks. Holy crap, guys. He actually has trunks. So, let the record be known there. Uh, Aquaman attacks him with a giant group of sharks, which is pretty cool. We'll see that. Uh, Brutus does escape, though, through a portal. And the Justice League goes back to the Hall of Justice to find out where he came from. So, they track Brutus's origin to Naomi, of course, that makes sense, I think, because I think Brian Michael Bendis was writing Naomi at the, uh, as well, uh, where we see Black Adam show up to confront Naomi about this link between her, her and Brutus. I won't spend too much time on the, the backup Justice League Dark story here, but basically it ends with Merlin killing a Elnara Rashtu, who I have no idea who that is, uh, and that's all I care to share from that. So... <laughs> I thought, thought the art was, was pretty good here. Um, yeah, really not much, not much else to report. It's kind of half it, the story. So. Well, I, well, let's begin number one with not only did Superman have trunks in the book you read him in last week, but he's also had trunks again since 2018. So Whoops. I, I mean, it, it, it's worth appreciating. It's worth appreciating, but... I, I do have to say that he's had it for a while. Okay, I don't read a lot of books of Justice Yeah, I don't read a lot of books of Superman, so sue me. You uh, read a book with him last week. Okay. Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, Vince and I will get into it. Opening his book with the defense of the stupid identity reveal immediately murkies the water with, with the tone, uh, definitely for me, because it just feels like you're defending your bad decision i it's the first time we've seen bendis on a team book in a while it's but it's not he, he's writing young justice which i forgot about so i guess to compare it because I've, I've always been the big proprietor that his new avengers was just doing justice league so this might be good uh vince you've always disagreed with me on that but i've always felt his avengers felt more like a justice league than ever than the avengers did but this was kind of a mess to the point where like, I don't know what this, like it's such a bad first issue comparing this to Nightwing. Cause nothing is really set up here. And the more grander sense of like getting the, like the league like shows up, they try to do something with black Adam, black Adam's just like, no, I got it. But also like at the same time, the Brutus character, like stop giving Bendis new alien villains that all look the same. Because, the, like, this guy's just 
Rogelzar version five. Like that's the way he looks to me. St- like stop it. Just use Despero. Use a maze. Like something else would have been much better uh, for Black Adam to fight and tangle with than just new nameless villain that I'll forget about in two months. But I also mm-hmm. felt the David Marquez art was kind of flat. Like it it was not up to par with the stuff I've seen from ultimate Spider-Man, but that was, you know, a couple years ago and it's, you know, different colorists, I think too. I, it was just kind of a weird like issue where like, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it, but it was definitely more on the bad realm for me. Like, I, I think that you look at Bendis, like this is a guy who's way past his prime and his goose might be cooked to me. I didn't totally like it either, but I feel like I actually differ a lot in some of the things that Mike said. Um, I think Nightwing was definitely a, a better first issue as far as a run, but I didn't think this was a bad first issue. The Marquez art, I mostly liked. I, when the league actually shows up um, and Dan, you know, had his little weird thing about the trunks, but I thought Marquez's Superman looks really good. Um, though it, it's kind of interesting. He kind of draws like a little bit of like a thin Superman. Like he, it's almost like, like you would imagine this Superman to be like, you know, early Metropolis, like just post Superboy or something. Yeah. Um, but the only thing on the Marquez, like I thought the art overall was, was actually fantastic. The one thing is there was like one, like two page montage sequence where like the, the art itself, I mean, it looked nice, but the kind of storytelling and, and, you know, the continuity of the page was slightly confusing to me, but that could just be me. My main thing here is like a lot of nitpicks, like, uh, like, yeah, I, I, I feel like this, I mean, the take on this run is to try and make the Justice League rel- more relatable and grounded because that's essentially his reasoning for bringing in his weird, like slightly meta defense of his Superman identity reveal. And then Green Arrow, you know, as you may, might expect sometimes from Green Arrow, Green Arrow is like, we need new blood in the league. And then, of but, course... But uh, my thing with that is Green Arrow hasn't been on the league in, like, four to five years, and he just shows up. Yeah, well, that's the other weird part is, like, it, it, it's very... I can't think of the right word, but, it, like, it doesn't fully line up if you're a long-time DC reader because it's, like... You know, obviously, the league has not always been super diverse and representative, you could totally argue it never really was, but at the same time, like in a very grand view, like hypertime, which is also like, as far as I know from death metal, that is like technically the current continuity. Yeah. So like, you know, they're like, we need new blood. It's always the same, like seven of us or whatever, but like, you know, as longtime DC readers and maybe with the hypertime stuff, like, you know, there's been hundreds of members of the justice league of all kinds and stuff. So it, but Bennis is giving it this this attitude like it's this insular thing. But even within this, you know, ignore that stuff, even within this continuity since the new 52, you know, some of these members like Black Canary, I don't know that she's technically been on the main roster Justice League ever up until this issue within the new 52. Um, I mean, she was, I think she was on that, you know, America book or whatever, but that doesn't matter. Black Canary was on the team in JLI era. I know, but I'm saying within the new 52. Like oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Which is like maybe kind of sort of technically the continuity, but Black Canary, you know, is like, she she's a new member in this issue technically, but Venice is acting like she's not, but it's also acting like we need new blood because there's it's always the same people, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, I, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I feel like a lot of the times people said that Venice's new Avengers 
like on the surface level, people said that it was like Justice League because he brought in Spider-Man because he brought in Wolverine and stuff like that. Similar to like, you know, Morrison's take on Justice League where it's like, you know, all the big guns. But the new Avengers, I mean, as far as kind of the premise for it, it was very much like, let's make the Avengers a little bit more relatable, a little bit more streetwise. Like that was the whole Luke Cage thing and everything um, and Spider-Man really. And so that's it kind of feels like that's what he's doing here. And on top of that, like, just the banter and the chemistry of these characters, the voices that he gives them, this kind of feels like a Marvel book to me, but maybe that's just because, you know, Bendis was Marvel for like 20 years. Yeah. And then I really don't understand DC's like position on Black Adam right now. Because I don't Black understand on Flash because the Flash there was in a lab coat and had red hair and that was not Wally West. So was that Barry Allen and that was an error? I don't know, but I'll let you go on. Yeah, the Black Adam thing, it, to me, at least, it seems that they're getting ready to do the tweener thing because The Rock's going to play him, and there's no way The Rock's playing a bad guy. Yeah, but they're but they're not like they're not they're not consistent about it. It's like yeah, they're not treating you know when they run into Black Adam, they're not treating him as this like immediate threat villain. And it seems, far as I know, that he's like you know like an antihero type of dude, mostly sticking in conduct. It was so the superheroes show up and they're like, hey this powerful dude who's like has some position of authority in a foreign country, or at least is very powerful. We're just going to be like, Hey, shoo away. We'll take care of this. But then also like not calling for help. And it's a very similar position that the league was taking endless winter where, you know, flash showed up or, you know, black Adam basically like knew all the secrets, like knew what was going on. And he's like, He's like, I could help you guys. And the Justice League's like, we don't want your help, even though like we're totally up in past our heads. And he like helps out the Flash in like that one entire issue we read. And the yeah. Flash, you know, wakes up and he's all rested and fed. And then he's like, oh, bye, Black Adam. I'm going to go help out. And I'm not going to ask you to come help with me. Um, and it's very strange. Though, I mean, I think he's technically, you know, he's joining this team. And then the big, uh, the big tease is Naomi is also joining this team. So we'll see. I think I'm going to continue this, but I I don't really like it, and I, I'm not sure I'll stick around long. Yeah, I I came to the same conclusion as you, Vince. It's like I don't really like this, but I, I'm curious enough to see where it goes because I think like if I'm looking at what the flagship book of Infinite Frontier is, I mean, obviously, I think it's whatever the Infinite Frontier meant, as we know that we had the zero issue, but we'll have you know one and two solicited down the line. But I think it's more of a every few months kind of thing. I don't think it's a monthly, but I mean, I feel like I'm definitely wrong on that. But I mean, if you're putting Bendis on Justice League, that, you know, it gives it that oomph of the flagship book, but I don't think it's going to reach the the highs of when New Avengers was the must-read title at Marvel to understand what was going to be happening in the Marvel Universe. I don't think that we're going to get that here, but, you know, maybe we scratch that surface and we get, you know, a light version of that. That would be nice, but... I'll stick with it just to see what, you know, in more of what Infinite Frontier is going to be. Uh, hitting very, very brightly, like very lightly on uh, Justice League Dark. I've been a Ram V fan for, I think, the last few months. He's my, my, my rising guy to follow, um, at least for me, because I'm going back, going back to read more of his stuff. But yeah, I the, 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 the this first chapter of the Justice League Dark backup felt a little, a little uh, rushy and, uh, you know, convoluted a little bit but maybe it gets better as it gets spread out but also at the end of the day why can't he just have a justice league dark book uh that would be better 
probably. Yeah, it, it, that didn't grab me at all. Basically, you know, Dan was Dan was joking like there's not really much to say, and it's kind of how I felt. It didn't really grab me in. I'm worried if maybe he doesn't have enough pages. Yeah. I also feel like I'm getting oversaturated on Jason Blood and Etrigan. It seems like Etrigan's everywhere and any ancillary thing I read this lately. So it's like, I need to, like, I don't need to see him all the time. So whenever he shows up, I'm just like, oh, here we go again. Even though I like that character, it's just, you know, it fatigue a little bit on that end. But uh, I'll go into Catwoman. Catwoman number 29, which is Ram V and Fernando Blanco with Jordi Blair on colors. Uh, Joel Jones still does covers for this book. Uh, taking over the cor- like taking the time over the course of Future State, I did catch up on Ramvi's Catwoman run. I think he took over at like issue twenty five or twenty six. But I I've been reading since the end of since since Joker War was not plastered on you know the book as a tie in. I've been reading, so I think it was like really only two issues. But uh, I, I'm I have this like semi working knowledge of what's going on. Selena is living in Alley Town and building kind of her own empire there, and she's been tracking this drug that's been coming into the town. She has like a bunch of we we saw this in the in the future state issues, the strays, uh, kind of like the orphan kids. Uh, she kind of has that too here, but in a lesser degree of what it was in future state. But there's this drug that's being infiltrated into Alley Town, and she's looking to get rid of it. And she also kind of is getting the help of this detective. He's named uh, Detective Hadley, who uh, she basically gave him the address of a shipping container where or she like blew up the shipping yard and got rid of it. Uh, so like ancillarily working with this uh, detective uh, who pays her to visit. And she's like, yeah, I don't need your help, but I owed you because I, I got shot and you helped me. So this, this are one clear thing that we're, you know, we're straight now. But uh, last issue cliffhanger was these doctors had captured Poison Ivy and were making these drugs like out of her energy and I guess essence. So Selena's on the trail of that where it takes her to the Riddler and then they're attacked by this assassin who's got like these phasing powers and kind of like a kind of looks like like a beehive for a head a little bit. But they manage to escape and jump out like the, this window and then into the harbor where they're getting shot at. And when they get, when she drags Riddler to the shore, he reveals that he's been shot and they're bleeding out. So that's her cliffhanger. Uh, definitely this crime vibe going on for, for Catwoman. And I liked it. I like Fernando Blanco's art. George Blair's colors are good as always. Dan, you dipped your toe into this. I thought it was all right. Uh, I'll continue along with it, but yeah, it is interesting. I'll, I'll say this before I, I break it to both of us, but I think it's interesting that this book didn't start with a fresh start. We ended with the middle, like the beginning of an arc and then two months now getting back to it after for the infinite frontier, which plays more into like the interesting strategy that DC's taking. Maybe this should have, you know, been a fresh start with an arc and not like part two, three, uh, which, you know, with a two month hiatus, but Dan, how'd you do trying to navigate the waters? Well, first off, like you said, the arc, uh, I thought was amazing. The pacing, the panel layouts of this issue, I think were so on point for me. I, I, this issue really felt like it, I really felt like it moved for me. So like that was very helpful. Um, yeah, I'm interested. I mean, obviously there's some stuff that I have to kind of like look into more to kind of get caught up on this, but no, I'm, I'm really interested. And I do appreciate that this is not like the Batman Catwoman store or book that is, you know, doing all this cheesecake with uh selena i feel yeah. like he does a good job yeah he does a good job like like you know playing her up as a you know as a very attractive 
character, but like doesn't go over the top and make it too like in your face. So yeah. give them credit for that. No, I'm definitely going to keep reading this. Yeah, the colors, especially when they get into like the city and it's like all green and stuff. I just love that. That this looks so cool to me. So yeah, the the whole sequence where she's in the the apartment with the Riddler and the fight goes yeah. down. Like that's there's there's like the purples too and the like the deep highlights. Yeah, the Jordy Brother colors and this are great. Uh, the fight scenes are also really good. So uh, I look forward to, you know, as we both navigate and figure out what more is going on in his run. And also maybe he gets high on track because he took over and then immediately got sucked into the Joker War crossover and now has a two-month delay between his next story and uh, with because Future State happened. So I think it'll find its ground as we go deeper on it. But uh, Ultra Mega. Yeah, this... Uh... This is not a good number one. <laughs> so we have, let me just pull up my little synopsis here. Ultra Mega number one, written and drawn by James Heron. So our story opens to a man whose name I forget. It's escaping me. I think it's Justin or James. Who cares? <laughs> uh, to a man who's given a crystal thing to help fight a virus. Turns out the man was a boxer who I guess lost a big fight guess became crippled or something and then had no job like we see him like as a a janitor and he gets his job taken away from from him by a robot so it's kind of like i guess placed in like a future society i guess uh he ends up fighting one of the virus creatures uh in the street which makes him transform into this large creature that takes that looks like the alien that gave him the power and it's kind of funny like after he destroys the villain like he transforms back into a human, but like his head still stays like really big. So we get that whole thing. And he's also like naked. He loses all his clothes, kind of like the Hulk, I guess. Not really though. Uh, we then see that his first wife was infected with the virus. And then he meets up with his friends and he fights the virus in the city. And I will be honest at this point, I kind of started skimming the second half of this book because I got super bored and confused and not interested in continuing to read it. Um, I mean, I think Mike will say the art's cool. I, I could not get into this art. Um, there, the, the fight with these like heroes and this virus gets pretty gory. And at one point the rope, the virus actually punches the guy's head off of him. And like, it's just like a stream of blood. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like queasy about blood, but I thought it was just a little too over the top for me. And then at the end, he kind of like turns like a robot version of like the alien. And then he has like an infinity gauntlet. What's going on? I mean, obviously, if I would have read the issue, I would have been able to tell you. But I do not have any vested interest in staying on this book. Uh, this is a big stinker for me. Uh, just something I just couldn't get into. I'll have to say, normally when we when we give you the the reins to read the book and do the recap you're the one that should be reading all of it i can't but i couldn't read it it was I bad say, i i did start skimming too yeah. but it, you you were the one this week who were like what books can i do and then you gave the one you didn't even read all of it i i just find that funny but um i i'd have to say if you're if you were a little perturbed by the by the head getting punched off you haven't read a vin uh, have you not started reading Invincible yet? Because that no. was outside of anything in the wheelhouse that you're going to see in that book. Can't wait. It, to, by the way, I mean, there are some scenes of Invincible that are very, very gory. Um, and that, that this was, you know, not, this was kind of adjacently in the wheelhouse of that, but 
there there was a final twist here with with the baby that was interesting, but like there wasn't enough here to be, keep me coming back. I just kind of felt was an incoherent mess of how we keep jumping from scene to scene and trying to find the grounding of it. But you know, the fights looked cool. Yeah, I I read the whole issue. I don't necessarily fully disagree with you guys though. I was interested to read this because it's basically you know the concept you know based on the title and obviously the premise. It's like Ultraman, but you know by an indie dude. Also, while Marvel is concurrently publishing an Ultraman book, I think James Heron was also one of the artists on the original Deceased series. Like a really odd pick, but he's also he's don't. I think his main book is called Headlopper, I think. Um, but he does other cool stuff. Um, this was not totally up my alley. I mean, I like the idea, but I was not expecting the, you know, the level of like kind of gore and stuff. I mean, it goes a little bit farther than invincible, you know, when the entire city's being like flooded with monster blood so that then people are being drowned alive in, in blood or then the blood like uh, hardens and they have to like dig the like dig through the hardened blood to try and find survivors. That's actually like a kind of neat idea that I don't think I've ever really heard about or seen in any other kind of story. But uh, I'm not going to continue here. Yeah, yeah, it was it was I guess thumbs down from all of us uh, on that front. But I mean, I appreciate. The, I, I will say, like, I think the art is yeah. like on a technical level and like a visual and everything. I think the art is really really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I thought it was. I thought it was really good. I, I thought the colors were good too. Yeah, but it's just the the story and cer- certain parts are. It's just not my cup of tea. I can say, Vince, if we're looking for for kaiju fights next week, we get Godzilla versus Kong. So maybe we'll comic. Talk. No, the movie. On oh. HBO. Wow, I had no idea what was coming up. Yeah, next week. So you're talking about some shitty legendary comics tie-in. No, no, no. The movie, the movie will be out next week, which maybe we'll uh, lightly discuss it. We probably won't, uh, outside of a passing comment. But I'll go into Thor. Thor number thirteen, Donnie Cates, Nick Klein. This is still, I think, it's like part four of the the story going on with Donald Blake at this point. Jane Foster successfully is able to recruit Odin to help the get the rest of the Asgardian heroes to fight against Donald Blake. Sif and Beta Ray Bill are. You know, they get joined by Doctor Strange and Lockjaw. Loki joins them too, Thro- and then they go and help Throg against uh, Donald Blake. See, Thor's talking to the Raven, sees that his body may not be freed from his realm inside the world tree, but his spirit can. So he knows just the vessel to choose. And then, like, Odin's getting ready to wipe the floor with Donald Blake out until Thor's like, hey, I got this. And we see the spirit that's, you know, his spirit that's inhabiting in getting to come back into the world is the destroyer armor. So the destroyer armor is going to beat, beat up Donald Blake. And it looks like we'll wrap this up all in the next issue. More Donny Cates, fun, bombastic stuff and Nick Klein's fun, awesome art. And also uh, Donny Cates gives us a reunion with Dr. Strange and bats, the, the ghost dog in a moment where he cusses out Loki, which was pretty good. So uh, for there, uh, I enjoyed it, but th- these Thor issues, I don't, walk away having a lot to say on it the they're they're just really fun for me but i'll I'll go to vince for our final book before the retro which was the the next color book for dc with superman red and blue yeah so there are there are five stories here i'm going to try and move through them somewhat quickly um because unlike when you know when dc does those ten dollar 100 page things like all the stories in here are worth commenting on 
So we open with an opportunity for an Eminem lose yourself joke as Superman's palms are sweaty. And this is the story by John Ridley and Clayton Henry. I'm not sure how I feel about the idea that Superman barely ever sweats, but in my book and what I wish this story would do is just, it's better to just not think about Kryptonian anatomy too hard. You know, when you start getting into like, oh, Superman doesn't get hurt because he has like a millimeter, he has like a millimeter protective shield around his body, fueled by the sun, like just stop, just stop. And of course there's the, you know, completely cursed, you know, more rat style argument about, you know, how does Superman have kids and stuff. But John Ridley then impresses the crap out of me by referencing and footnoting World's Finest issues 192 and 193, which are issues that DC has never reprinted. Um, they put out a nice World's Finest hardcover um, a year or two ago, which picks up like just a couple issues after those ones. Because there was like a period where it was less Batman-Superman team up and more Superman team up with random. Just for some reason, they did that for like a year. So this version of Superman also existed prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. So there's a little bit of continuity wrinkles. And I mean, this is like, you know, the red and blue anthology. So who the hell cares? Um, But this is a fantastic story. Basically, Clark Kent is going to interview a guy in a former like Soviet republic that committed all these war crimes. And in fact, while back in the day before the fall, Superman was doing something in the area and due to, you know, kryptonite stuff, basically Superman became like a tortured prisoner of war. And it's a pretty conceivable non-hokey way to show Superman at his lowest. Like I bought it. And then later in life, returning to those memories, obviously it has real world parallels with, you know, a lot of Eastern Europe and things like that. I thought the Clayton Henry art was strong. He's not necessarily the artist that you'd expect on this kind of this kind of book, but here I thought it was good. Um, and I'll get into a lot more art comments as we go along. The second story has art by Steve Lieber, and the art was very nice. It's not quite the style that I expect from him recently. You know, I'm thinking of like Superior Foes of Spider-Man or the fix at Image with also with Nick Spencer, or I'm thinking of uh, you know, Jimmy Olsen with Matt Fraction. But this is not really, it's, it doesn't really look like any of either of those. The story is basically an anti-drugs PSA mixed with dealing with grief and, how, and you know, the message that, you know, Superman tries really hard, but he can't do everything. Unfortunately, I thought the writing in this story was very ham-fisted with super unnatural dialogue from Brandon Easton, kind of dragged the whole thing down. Third story is written and drawn by Wes Craig from Deadly Class. And this is the one that I finally felt took the art in a more experimental lane, as you would expect on this series, you know, coming out of the legacy of Batman Black and White. And this is the first where the color really feels like fully baked into the concept. The other ones, when I'll get to this more and more, kind of feels forced. Now, this this next story by Dan Waters and Danny, which are the team that did Coffin Bound, which I talked about on the show at some point, this takes the blue and red premise and just flips the table where we actually start in black and white because a fifth dimensional imp, you know, like Miss, Miss, like Mr. Mixie Pitlick has stolen color from the world. And he, the Superman has a conversation with him and, and basically the imp's like, ah, okay, I kind of screwed you over and like, I wasn't thinking too seriously. So here's this box with color and you can decide what you want to do. 
And there's a real quandary on whether, you know, color is good or bad, because as color was wiped away, no one really remembers color or like fully understands it. So Superman is contemplating restoring it. There's like a little, you know, gag. There's like a, there's an angle where like Batman is more resistant, which like kind of works out, you know, dark and brooding, black costume and all that stuff. So Batman's like, eh, color sounds kind of suspicious. And Lois kind of gives him some advice and she's like, maybe just go one at a time. So then tying into the title of the book, Superman selectively first brings back red and then blue and and it's explained well in a philosophical way. It's like, you know, red is the color of love, but it's also blood and violence and anger. And, you know, blue is calming and it's music, but it's also sadness, blah, blah, blah. But if anything on this story, it's a really genius idea, but at the very end here, you almost wish that this was in a less restrictive anthology where this could go a little bit further. This could be a whole issue, a whole one-shot, and further colors could follow. Danny's art is good, and it's better than that weird Gotham by Gaslight story from earlier in one of those giant anthologies. But her style and the lack of color makes Superman look like he has like this combed-back, undercut haircut. And there aren't really any like super draw-dropping visuals, but as the color is integrated, there's some really cool moments here. Now, the final story is the one that I have and I'm kind of the most critical on and then where I'm going to wrap it all together. So Marguerite Bennett here and Jill Thompson, it's a pretty fun tale of Clark's first day of school in kindergarten. And the writing from Bennett for young Clark, it feels really off to me. Granted, it's very hard to write kids. I definitely don't think I could do it, let alone their internal thoughts, which is a whole other level. But this story in particular getting to the art side gives me an excuse to get to my main criticisms of this entire issue and potentially the whole series, because I swear to God that this story does not follow the rules of the color palette. It's watercolor style. And there are elements here. Like there's a, there's a kid who pops up and there's certain elements where I swear to God, there's green in this story or some kind of variation. That's not, it, it, you know, it's like a, it's close to like a gray kind of color but there's some kind of color in there that is not just black, white, red, and blue. But all, and even if it's like technically follows the rules to our eyes, it doesn't. So like it effectively doesn't follow the rules. but ultimately I kind of think the entire premise of the series doesn't work. And maybe this is crackpot theory, but you know, color printing is built on CMYK, which obviously those don't, you know, that's cyan, magenta, yellow, and, and key black. Um, and obviously, comics were born in an era, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, of primitive printing, cheap paper, you know, et cetera. So the four-color identity is strong, you know, in comics culture, in the visual, you know, language of comics. And this book just locks away one of those. But by the nature of color, you know, you can still express things very vividly by taking those others and mixing them, which is basically what this watercolor story gets away with. And you're giving yourself tons of loopholes to cheat with. So ultimately, with the exception of Wes Craig's story, everything here to me either feels like it's missing something or it's just awkwardly forced or it's almost cheating. And at some points, like the the first story from Clayton Henry, which I thought was actually pulled it off fairly well, that one in particular, you almost like if you looked at it real quick, you almost feel like you'd be you're reading like one of those old 3D comic gimmicks from the 80s or something. 
And also with this issue in particular, I felt like the writing is being leaned on more than the art, which is not what I want from these books. Even when they're all strong and unique artists, besides Clayton Henry, who's kind of, you know, no offense, he's not like the most experimental artist, even though I liked his story. But then they're leaning on the writing, but then two of, at least two of the stories, I thought the writing was weak. So I'm kind of way, like this is, I, it might be above, you know, the Wolverine book, but it's definitely below the latest Batman Black and White. Next issue, I'm excited for Dennis Cowan and Ben Pinojan on stories, but that's like two of five, so we'll see. I think I'm going to read it because I still like kind of the experimental nature of it. Yeah, I I liked pretty much every story in here except for that last one, which, yeah, that one was I saw green in there. I'm sure it was in the way it was put together. It wasn't intended, but that's the way it looked. Also, young Clark looked weird. Yeah, I, I agree. The last story was a little up. I like the one where he where he meets the kid that uh, who got his hand crushed years later. I thought that was good, but you know, it everything once like Batman Black and White. We we've kind of seen these series stories with you know Superman before, but now it's in a different gimmick and. It's the first issue where it's different because it's not just black and white. You're playing with different, you know, different values and, you know, you know how much you want to go with the blacks. But also you have the red and blues in there that you're going to see how you sprinkle them in. I, I, at least I had this. Why don't they do just Superman black and white? Well, I don't I think this kind of proved why that wouldn't work to me, because the one where it was where the, the fifth dimensional imp stole all the color, which I think it was mixing spindle but I'm not sure. I don't think it was. Uh, Batman shows up for a second. Batman looks great, but Superman doesn't. And everyone around him doesn't look great in the black and white. Until the color got in there, I was like, oh, okay. And maybe it's just in in my head, when I see Superman and it's not colored, it doesn't look as right. Well, while Batman is always more of a darker character in the suit, you know, it's usually a black cape and cow and a gray suit. So if it's black and white, it looks, you know, enough the same where it's familiar and you get past it. But when that suit's not blue and that cape's not red, it's going to look a little odd. And, you know, you don't need the yellow belt and the inside yellow on the symbol to make it look, you know, not familiar. But yeah, it's a weird thing to play around with. I liked all the stories here. I I thought the John Ridley story was really good. It's another great John Ridley short. He's like three for three on these outside of the, uh, the one with the next Batman. Uh, Cause I think he had a different one as well, but uh, I'll say that, but man, th- get more John. I want to see more John Ridley stuff th- later this year. But overall, I-, I think it's good. I'll stick with it. I- I'm wondering how the the Wonder Woman black it was. What is it? Wonder Woman black and gold. How that one's gonna uh, function with with the how 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 much are they gonna lean into the gold versus the yellow or something? But we'll get there down the road. But overall, I don't think it was as good as any issue. I, I think this was better than the last issue of Batman Black and White, because I wasn't high, super hot on that one. But yeah, this is better than uh, the issues of the Wolverine story, uh, the Wolverine series. Yeah, I mean, you guys pretty much touched on a lot of stuff. Definitely liked the the one with the, all the colors missing at the beginning. I like that story. Uh, the one with the, the little child in the fire. I thought that was pretty cool, too. It it, they're tough colors to work with, I feel like, and I feel like every story kind of uses them in different ways, like, you know, using blue for skin tones or using red for skin tones. It all depends on the mood, but yeah, I don't know. This, I feel like there's so many like books out there that are like have like a, 
a color after that. <laughs> like, you know, like compared- a, a color gimmick seems to be the thing for 2021. Yeah, and I don't know. I just feel like it's just if you do it so much together like this, people start to catch on, and it's kind of like, okay, we've seen this before. I don't know. Yeah, as far as we're good. If DC wanted to expand it, I I um I know you you know Mike made the point that maybe Superman doesn't work quite as well in black and white compared to Batman, but if DC really wanted to expand this. I almost wish that they would do what Marvel's doing and just stick to the same format. Like just give us Superman black and white and Wonder Woman black and white instead of trying to make them different and get cutesy with the colors because I don't know that it really works. Well, I think Dan hit a great nail on the head here too with with the way that you'll you see some stories use skin tones for blue, but some stories don't use skin tones at all. And and with red and blue, you have a wide range of different shades and values of of those two different colors so like to just distill what is red what is blue you're going to get different shades and values and colors and everything in every different story while and it seems to be consistent with batman black and white the black is always going to be the same black and the white's always going to be the same white so you don't really get a difference of the shading in, in batman black and white well here like there's there there's very like there's we have light blues we have strong bold primary blues there's not a lot of navy in this one, but I'm sure you know something to ex- play around with in later iterations. If you ever set a story at night, you can use a navy uh, for your setting. But yeah, it, it's it's a different experiment that I'm I'm waiting to see how it's going to go further down the line. Like I'm still going to read probably every issue in this in this series because uh, the stories have been good. But it is just something to look and see how they're going to experiment with it overall. One thing I, I want to say, you kind of made me think of something with John Ridley, especially this story where he's like given footnotes to, uh, you know, to world random world's finest issues from like the early seventies. And then obviously I've been reading other history of the DC universe. This is really reductive, but like John Ridley kind of gave me Christopher Cantwell vibes where, you know, it's like a guy coming in from Hollywood, but like really knows his stuff and, or is, you know, getting dirty in the research. Um, and is telling, you know, very compelling stories that you might expect from someone like outside of comics, but is executing them really well and is bringing kind of the homework with them. Uh, so those two, yeah, two people that I'm really excited about, uh, you know, one of them mainly at Marvel and one mainly at DC. Yeah, which I, I want to see more from what what, what really does. I, I, I'm excited to see what, uh, what DC uses him on and puts him on outside of, you know, as we further his level here because it looks like he'll have other projects outside of just the next batman uh which is exciting but i'll go into our final book which is our retro in dr strange number 52 from april of 1982 this is roger stern marshall rogers terry austin on the inks so following their previous adventures in world war ii london strange clea and morgana blessing have returned to the present but morgana has fallen into a coma where her life force is being drained and then we get some romantic drama with Clea basically leaving Strange as she saw into Morgana's psyche and was shown that her love for Strange was more than hers. And in that time, she will eventually be with Steven. So she leaves him. It kind of, I, I, I don't know how to feel about that. It, it's, it's kind of weird. But then Morgana's Barty starts, you know, firing bolts of magic around them, which prompts Strange to go inside her mind to figure out what's happening here. And there he's met with Nightmare, who informs Strange that this coma has wrapped Morgana's soul, and the trip (laughs) to the past caused a rift where now her soul is reverting back to its earliest incarnation. 
and it will cause a change reaction, destroying all of humanity, Nightmare included. So he's like, hey, uh, Dr. Strange, you want to go fix this? So he's transported to different times. He goes to the Spanish Inquisition where Strange has to find her, you know, whatever soul that uh, woman that was inhabiting at that time, but gets sidetracked and on escaping, he's going to escape this prison after he was poisoned by the woman that he thought was Morgana. And he's like, oh, wait, it's not going to be the same woman. It could be different in these different times. So he has to now process that. So then he gets further thrown in the past, the Yucatan Peninsula in 800 AD. Meanwhile, in reality, uh, doctors are overseeing Organa and seeing that her conditions worsening, fearing brain damage. So Strange is now working against the clock. And that and then also all of humanity might die if he, you know, he's getting out of time for how further they can go back. So it's kind of a fun thing here. We are in the middle of an arc. So it's I feel like we're not getting as much of it out of it as we could but you see a lot of ditkoism and marshall rogers here and that's the reason why i chose it is i i like marshall rogers as batman so i want to check out marshall rogers as dr strange um it a lot of the layout's similar to what i've seen on his batman stuff and his expressive faces the way he composes pages like the close-up shots of someone's face with another drawing inside kind of a neil adams thing but something he adopted as well but this makes him ultimately perfect for dr strange uh, I felt every page and panel is going to have a signature, you know, expressive nature there and uh, energy to the piece. So, I, I mean, I love it. Happy I went with this. I think I, I'd known Rogers had drawn some Doctor Strange, and I think maybe we looked at it in a previous issue before, but I'm not entirely sure. Maybe that was one of the Paul Smith issues. I, I can't remember. It was like an early episode, so if you want to go back and figure it out, but uh, it was like maybe one of our first retros uh, before Dan uh, was doing the show consistently. I think that was still when it was me and Vince. But always a pleasure to see more of, you know, Marshall Rogers art in any capacity. I can look at it. Love the cover, too. It's it's such a good cover. I could have gone with the easy alternate choice for this month. Daredevil 181 was out that same same month. But and as a huge Daredevil fan, oh, it looked like it was an easy one to choose. But overall, like we've all read that issue and I found that there wouldn't be much for us to really add in a discussion just at the end of a show on the uh, on the retro book segment. Maybe in the future, if we ever do a deep Daredevil deep dive thing, it'd be something to talk about. But ultimately, I am happy I went with this choice because it, it was a fun thing to look at the Marshall Rogers art, at least. Uh, the story, you know, it, it's got... It, Doctor Strange has this thing where it's like, his the the things he's fighting are like the world that the stakes get so high that it kind of starts being semi-hilarious where there's not other heroes built into it so this one woman's mind where if he doesn't stop and correct things is going to destroy all of humanity it escalates very quickly but you know it's still cool all at the same time yeah i mean i I really like this issue the way that rogers draws strange i mean his face is i don't know something about it just feels very like stoic and yeah, it still really has like a lot of character and yeah, this is just this is just a crazy issue, right? There's so much stuff going on here. Yeah. Like you said. And like it's just funny because like it's it's just like the rest of the Marvel universe is just so blissfully unaware of like what Strange has to do to keep their reality in check. So it's just yeah, this is exactly what you expect from a Doctor Strange book. And uh the only the only little gripe I have is I I know this might be me just being a, a you know, a little petty but i just feel like something like there's just a lot of a lot of speech going on in this book and i know this is from 82 so it's it's getting there in terms of like more modern books but 
there's a lot of explanation and thought bubbles and I don't I don't know. I guess thought bubbles was kind of like the progression from narration. So now it's kind of it's just I don't know. That's the only gripe I have, but otherwise a great issue. No, I thought there was there there is a little heavy narration too, but maybe it's yeah. because like I just want to look at the Marshall Rogers art and it's clouded mm-hmm. by like 15 boxes sometimes. Yep. Yeah, this is good. I don't have that much more to add. Uh, I always find it interesting when, I mean, I'm sure I do it too, but I usually, you know, when I pick my retros, I like dig real deep and try and figure out it just because I'm crazy. So it's kind of, it's always interesting to me when we end up picking something that's like technically in the middle of an arc because it was never, you know, back then it was never as obvious. And, you know, on that note, like, you can tell that this is in between things. You can tell that things continue in the next issue and that it picks up a little bit from the previous. But you can also totally read this on its own. And uh, I wish all comics were like that. Well, that this is in the shooter era at this point, right? Where it's that mandate of every comic should be able to read standalone, but... Something like that. I mean, you know... Every comic, someone's first comic, so, you know, at least make characters known in the first... Yeah. We, we, we're all kind of reiterating what we know with the statement, but off the top of my head, I can't exactly remember what the mandate commandments were yeah no my only my my asterisk there was going to be that like you know shooter may have set the rules but not not everyone didn't always follow them and he probably broke them broke them himself but as a general idea um yeah he had something similar to that i'm i'm pretty certain this is definitely the shooter era yeah this is um and i agree with you know as a general rule you know there can be you know exceptions but i agree with that general idea and I have to say, normally when I think we always try to look for a number one or something where we try not to read something in the middle of an arc uh, when we look for the retro. But but overall, like, I think we have had success of things in the middle of arcs. That Yeah, I think there's I think there's appeal and it's always interesting both ways. In fact, if anything, I would say sometimes it gets it, it's too easy. It's it's a little lazy sometimes when we when we always pick number ones. Um just because especially when we're looking at these older eras, it, it is really interesting to jump into a run, you know, in the middle or jump into an arc in the middle and, you know, see how, you know, how well you can float. Yeah, well, I I'd at least have to say for me, like, there's been a couple of times where, we do, where we've done that where I'm like, wait, I want to, you know, like, I want to go back and, you know, read more of this run because, like, I haven't highlighted it. So, it, yeah, it's, I think you get a best of both worlds scenario with the way we choose it. And this is one of those ones where it's like, I, at least knowing for me, because I know not a lot of this uh, Roger Stern strange stuff is collected, it just keeps mo- making me want Marvel to reprint it. And I think hopefully, you know, maybe around the time of Doctor Strange 2, we'll get to that point, which will be nice. But, uh, you know, we, we've had those moments of like, at least for me, where, you know, we read a book in the middle of a run on the retro segment. I was like, ah, I want to check out check out more of this. But overall, let's uh, let's do picks of the week. I'll do mine right up the top back. It's Nightwing. Hands down, it's Nightwing. I think I'm there with you. It's definitely not X-Force. I'm going to give it to Nightwing. Just to be different, I'll put Go Catwoman. Okay. I mean, just to be different, but I mean, Nightwing would probably be your two then. Yes. It's not Ultra Mega. We know that. (laughs) Hell no. Put that in the trash. That's, That's all we have for this week. Enjoy the college basketball. Stay safe out there. Peace.